Steve Gachtina and welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Steffi Meherney. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And today we are continuing the story of the wooing of Etain, a saga that dates back to at least the 11th century, but the written version probably has its origins in the 8th century. Like last time though, we still don't get to meet the titular Etain. Yeah, our ancestors had a habit of filling in a tremendous amount of backstory before getting to the point. And that's something that would not pass an editor's desk today without demands to cut large segments of the story. That actually sort of reminds me of my own approach to storytelling yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, even though there's no attain, we do get to meet the other protagonist of this love story, Midir. We've already briefly encountered him in the saga of the first battle of Maitura um, that we covered in episodes three through five. So you remember uh, from the first part of this story that the god and goddess Bowen and the Dagda have a one night stand and this leads to the birth of Angus. So the Dagda then uses his magic to make the passage of nine months seem like a single day so that Bowen's husband Elkmar doesn't find out. And at the end, the Dagda takes his son away. Well, today we'll see that the Dagda took Angus, the son, to Brila in what is today known as County Longford to be fostered by Midir and his wife Fumach. The plot of the story revolves around Angus discovering his true heritage, for EastEnders, and uh, a visit to his father's seat of power to demand some land of his own. And as we've already mentioned the earliest fragments of the story can be found in a text written in the 12th century, Lerna which in English is known as the Book of the Dun Cow. The first complete version is from the 14th century Lerbwy Lachen, also known as the Yellow Book of Lachen, but the text was probably copied down from an 8th century manuscript. And we think this is the case because the language in the story is a much earlier form of Irish than would have been in use at the time the Dunkau and the Yellow Book versions were written. And that could actually have very important contextual implications, which we'll get back to later on, along with a discussion of a significantly different version of this story. But for now, we present The Wooing of Attain Part 2, How Angus Took Newgrange. Midder the Proud stands atop Brila, the she where he resides, not far from the middle of Ireland. Below... A game unfolds, 150 boys and girls on each side, hurls in hand, arms flying, legs in rapid motion, feet tearing up the turf. A slitter, a small hard ball, cuts through the early summer air and the one who stands out among them all rushes to intercept. A fierce puck out by the keeper, Ochnish. And it's no surprise she swings a fierce axe in battle. And it's Angus who rises majestically at the forty, foster son of Mither of Bree Less, some call him the young son, fitting with him virtually levitating in the midday sky, golden curls flapping in the breeze. Angus takes the puck in hand, but oh, Tria, Tria of the Furbolg, jumps to meet Angus, grabs his shirt and pulls the boy to the ground. Tria, of course, the son of Fevel, a man who still bears a few grudges about the Battle of Maitura, and he might just have passed them on to his son. The two players are rolling around on the ground now, throwing punches. Angus only seven years old, of course, but he has the size and strength of a 14-year-old, and he's giving as good as he gets here. 
Midder rushes towards the melee, furiously blowing a whistle made of tree bark. The two boys stand face to face, taking turns at shoving one another. Must be hard to be the son of a loser, Angus spits. Tria snarls. At least I know who my father and mother are, golden child. Angus scoffs. My father is Midder and this land is my inheritance, my birthright. Tria laughs hard. Don't make me laugh, fosterling. Midder grabs hold of both youngsters by their shirts and pulls them apart, pointing at opposite sides of the playing field to indicate that for Angus and Tria, the game is over. Midder blows the whistle to restart the game and 149 face off against 149, both teams now without their star player. Midder goes to the sideline where Angus slumps. The boy's glorious golden gruig flopping over his elbows and forearms, his face obscured. Midder sits down beside him. Is it true? Angus asks. Midder heaves a sigh. Answer me, Angus insists. Is it true you are not my real father and Fumach is not my real mother? What is real? Midder mumbles. Was it not I who raised you? Was it any other who gave you your education and taught you to hurl? Was it anyone but Fumach who kept you in fine garments and tucked you in at night? True. You have been a father to me, the only one I've known, but answer me this. Who brought me here to you? Whose seed and whose fruit am I? Midger breathes in slowly, then out slowly. I wasn't to tell you for another seven years, but the secret is out. You have nothing to worry about, for your father is far greater than me. I will take you to him tomorrow, at first light. As the day breaks, two godly figures, Midder and Angus, board a chariot outside Brile, and they travel south. They loop around hills, drive along pathways that cut through forests and over bogs, and in less than an hour, they have arrived. Ishnach, says Midger, navel of Ireland and home of your father. Midger and Angus climb the hill in front of them until they reach a mound whose entrance is blocked by a great stone. Before they can come to a stop and without the intercession of human or God, the stone slides away from the entrance, revealing a passage. Entering the passage, they find it is sloped. First they can walk, but as the gradient increases, they find themselves running involuntarily, and before long they are sliding on their behinds. Down and down they go. The slide curls and twists and loops until it ends, and they drop. Midger and Angus's fall is broken by a giant bale of hay, and they roll off onto the floor of a dimly lit circular hall. Long shadows fall around the room, figures of beings that crisscross in a knot pattern. Midder and Angus stand up and glance around. The hall is surrounded by dark cloaked guards, each holding a spear in their right hand and at the top of the room is a throne and upon that throne sits the Dagda. His red bearded face is illuminated by two fires, one on which a pig roasts on a spit, while another pig that is visibly growing in front of the eyes of the new arrivals lies by its side, 
The other fire heats a cauldron and the liquid within it reflects two prongs, the top, the staff, the Dagda holds in his right hand. The Dagda glowers at the two gods who stand in front of him. There is a short, yet uncomfortable silence until he taps the bottom of his staff on the floor beside his throne and the guards that surround the room drop to the floor dead. Why have you brought the boy to me now, Midger? the Dagda inquires. This meeting was not supposed to occur for another seven years. Midger bows his head before the lord of all the she in Ireland. Ochid, my apologies. But he found out by himself I, I could not keep him from you another day. Angus taps his foot on the ground, clearly irritated. I am right here. Speak to me, father. Why was I kept secret? Why did you kill your guards? Are you ashamed of me? The Dagda tugs on his beard with his left hand. Ashamed? No, I am proud of you, son. But I have many enemies and war is coming. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to wait until you were ready to defend yourself against whatever threat might come your way. He glances around the room. And the guards will be fine. I'll wake them from their slumber in a bit. Now, what is it you want? Angus steps forward. Acknowledged as your son and heir and to be granted land of my own. Midyar interjects. With due respect, great father, it isn't right that the boy be without his own she when you are the lord of all the she in Ireland. Yes, yes, the doctor replies. Your words are true enough, but therein lies another problem and another reason I would have had him wait seven more years to claim his birthright. The she that I wish for him is not yet vacant and I need the allegiance of the one who dwells there now. Ah, Midger responds, the plan suddenly dawning on him. The brew by the Boyne. Where you were born, Angus, the Dagda adds. But I have an idea. Elkmar must not think that I took the brew from him. So it must be you who takes it. How will I do this? asks Angus. The Dagda calls the boy to his throne and he whispers the plan in his ear. Now take your leave, son. Heed the advice I have given and you will be the lord of your own she. He taps the forked end of his staff on the ground and his guards groan and sigh and each one stumbles to their feet. Elkmar stumbles across the field in front of his palace, Brunabuinia. It has been a day of feasting, one of peace in these lands when every being, god and mortal, lays down their arms, puts quarrels aside and is merry. Elkmar is very merry indeed. He has had a skinful of mead and another skinful of ale and he is only fit for his bed. With the door to the brew in sight, he hears a whistle coming from the long grass, not far away in the direction of Crua. Perhaps one of the other revellers has lost their way, 
Maybe some mortal has stepped on a stray sod and inadvertently wandered into his domain. He goes to investigate. A breeze whistles through the grass and for a moment Elkmar considers that this is what he heard but then he hears it again. There is definitely someone out there. Out of nowhere, he feels an arm wrap around his torso and feels a cool, sharp blade against his throat. Don't kill me, please. If it is riches you are looking for, I can get it. There is more than enough to satisfy you in my she. I will not kill you, good Elkmar, replies the brigand, on one condition. You will leave your palace and I will be king there, Lay Cuniha. King of my domain for a night and a day, muses Elkmar. Agreed. I will go. The brigand releases Elkmar and he turns to see the golden curled Angus looking upon him, though he does not know who he is. The following morning, Elkmar takes his leave and Angus enters the she, sits on Elkmar's throne in the very place where he was born, and he waits. While he waits, he receives guests and entertainers. He drinks Elkmar's mead and he eats Elkmar's food. The next morning, Elkmar returns and demands the return of his palace and lands, but Angus refuses. In return for your life, you promised me this house lay Cuniha day and night. It is always either day or night. There is nothing in between. So I am now the legitimate lord of this domain. This is trickery. It will not stand, Elkmar explains. We will take this before the king and the she, Akud Olahar. He will rule on this dispute. Angus agrees, for he already knows the outcome. Elkmar and Angus stand before the Dagda in the dimly lit hall where the young son met his father for the first time since the day he was born as the king and the she delivers his judgment. Elkmar, you were taken unawares and fell foul of the wordplay of this youth, but his case is true, he is the rightful owner of the brew. Elkmar hangs his head, sniffles and replies, If it be so, my lord, I will abide by your judgment. The Dagda continues. As to what is to become of you, I have taken into account the nature of the boy's trickery, your own innocence in this matter, and that you believed your life was under threat when you made the agreement. I will grant you another she of your own, and it will be no less fitting with you. You and the boy shall be neighbours, I grant you Kletuk and the lands around it, across the river from the brew. Your youths can play in your old lands, and when Bowen returns from her travels, she will not have to look far to find you. With that, Elkmar took possession of Kletuk and built a stronghold there, and Angus took possession of Brew Nabunya. So some devious goings on there from the Dagda and Angus. And just by way of explanation, in case you didn't get what that um, trick was about, in the Irish language, there's no indefinite article. So you don't have 
Ah, so when Angus says Le Konihe, that can mean either a day and a night or a day and night. But in the end, poor El- Elkmar loses his house over this. Yeah, he's been he's been a bit hard done by in this story, hasn't he? Uh, he has, yeah, and he doesn't really appear in many of the surviving tales in Irish mythology. So we know very little about him, and as a result, it's very hard to des- to decide if he deserved this or not. <laughs> um, yeah, he's only ever really mentioned in relation to the women in his life, which sort of makes a change from female characters only being known by the deeds of the men in their lives. He's Bowen's husband here and in the Bowen 2, Dinshenkis, though in Bowen 1, her husband is Nyakton. And in his other appearances in Demetrical Dinshenkis, now they're poems about the origins of place names. He's the father of Anglic and Fia. Anglic appears in the poem relating to the name of Nauf, Crua uh, in Irish, where Midder and Angus compete for her affections. And Nauth, as you might know, is a passage tomb similar to Newgrange. Now, we covered what these are in previous episodes, but just to recap, uh, passage tombs are megalithic stone constructions that had a passage, I guess, in the middle and uh, were used as burial chambers a lot of the time. And there's a huge amount of them around the kind of the, the Meath uh, area, east coast of Ireland. So Nauth is just up the road from Newgrange and you can visit it. Uh, I suppose, when we're allowed to go outside of our homes again. Uh, you can go to Bruna Bunya Visitor Centre, which is just outside the village of Denor in County Meath. And from there, you can take a guided tour, um, as well as a tour of Newgrange. So, I mean, they're well worth visiting if you're ever in the area. It's not far from Dublin, so it's not hard to get to. Yeah, you want to get there early in the day, especially, especially during the summer, if you want to do both. Um, but it's it's really, really worth it. Just breathtaking. But um, another thing you might like to do if you're if you're somebody who's going to visit Ireland on holiday sometime is go to a hurling match. Now, today's story starts out with a game and it's probably the oldest sport played in Ireland. And one of, it's actually one of our national games. While Gaelic football is probably the more popular of the two sports on a national scale, hurling enjoys the prime spot between the two main Gaelic games in counties Kilkenny, Tipperary, Wexford, Limerick, Waterford, Clare, Antrim and probably Cork, although it's touch and go there. Football is very popular there as well. Um, but Cork's a big hurling county and Galway and Offaly are also big hurling counties that have kind of nearly equal footing between the two games. And and though hurling is actually played throughout the country and almost every county, even the football dominated ones, has a parish or two where the hurling is more popular. I'm not sure about Kerry. Kerry's very football orientated. Anyway, how how would you describe hurling to somebody who has never seen it? Um, it's an interesting question. A game of savagery. Uh, <laughs> no, I I would describe it. It's it's a very fast game, uh, played by teams of fifteen, and they have flat sticks known as hurlies or hurls. They're kind of like imagine if you got a hockey stick and sort of went over it with a rolling pin and flattened it. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, They have a narrow handle and sort of a wide base that's curved at the end. Something like a gibbous moon. So like that's the opposite to a new moon or a crescent moon where the crescent is the invisible part. I'm probably making it more complicated than it actually needs to be now. But anyway, it's played on a regular pitch and the goals are like a cross between kind of a rugby and soccer goal with a netted rectangle like soccer at the bottom and then like two high poles extending up 
from there like you would have in in rugby. But sure, look, if you've never seen it, do a search on YouTube because it really has to be seen to be sort of understood and we'll we'll put some links in the show notes. But I suppose that the main, one of the main, like it's a game of great skill and speed. The game of hurling today that's governed by the official Gaelic Athletic Association rules would have up until the late 19th century been known as probably Munster hurling as from the southern part of our half of Ireland and Ulster had its own rules and while the game of hurling today involves a lot of carrying and holding of the ball Ulster hurling was actually played mostly on the ground and in that respect it's similar to a Scottish game called Shinty and I think there was there was a, an English game called Bandy that was that's kind of obsolete now that was kind of similar it was probably actually Ulster hurling that the children are playing in our tale today um, as well not actually Ulster our story takes place in the northern half of the country, which is kind of Ulster-dominated in, in the Middle Ages. And in the Ulster cycle itself, hurling plays a huge role, and these are the stories involving Cúchulainn. I think we should do a hurling mm. special at some point where we uh, cover just hurling in general mythology. So yeah, if you're into that, uh, we will probably do that at some point. But anyway, Ulster hurlers who settled in Canada, as it happens, were actually instrumental in the creation of the game of ice hockey, fun fact, uh, along with Scottish shinty players and probably some of those, um, the people who, the, who were playing the, the English game called Bandy. And the word puck, meaning the hard disc used, to, used instead of a ball, is derived from a hurling term to puck, which means to hit the ball. Uh, puck in its in itself is derived from the Irish word puck, which like spelled P O C, which means to strike with a stick. And if you're interested in finding out more about those links between hurling and hockey, uh, ice hockey, there's a really interesting documentary on the TG Cahar player, and um, that's the Irish language television network here, and it's presented by Clare hurling legend Sherry uh, Lachnan, and it's bilingual, so a lot of it's in English, but it's some of it's in Irish. Gerald McNan goes to this place called Windsor College in Nova Scotia, where there are records of immigrants from Ulster playing hurling on the ice. And I think they still actually play a game uh, once a year in commemoration of that. That sounds absolutely bonkers. Oh, yeah. It's a... Hurling on ice. Well, I mean, obviously, like I yeah. want to go and see this and witness this madness. But, you know. But have you ever watched an NHL like hockey game? Where would I be watching NHL? I I have a a mild interest in it. But um, I'm not surprised there's a link because that's uh, that's mad. Like, you know, they they still do that thing where they drop the gloves and have a fight, which which, which you'll see. Well, there's no gloves in in Harland, but, you know, they'll... In ice hockey? Yeah, in ice hockey, yeah. They take off their gloves and scrap? Yeah. That's a thing. That's actually, like... I think they're trying to phase it out now or something, but what? it's actually a part of the, like a like the two lads get sent off for about five minutes not to, and then they're allowed back on. Not to go into cultural stereotypes, but I thought ice hockey was like a big thing in Canada and isn't the mm. whole thing about Canadian people that they're like fierce, polite. And well, yeah, because that's because they, they, they use all their aggression up on, on the ice, you know. Do you know, I always thought it was really interesting, isn't it? in cricket that they stop and they have like tea and sandwiches and oh, stuff. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, that's very civilised. And this is sort of like... The anti-cricket. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, I mean, if you told me that that was the buzz in hockey, I probably would have been more enthusiastic about watching it before. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really a time. Is not, there a technical term for when they take the gloves off? Dropping the gloves. Dropping the gloves. Yeah. <laughs> dropping the gloves. It sounds like a euphemism for yeah. something. <laughs> Only so. you come up with that now. 
Sure, I live in the gutter. What yeah. can I say? You know, but you're looking up at the stairs. That's yeah, yeah, Oscar Wilde. Anyway, but um, I just actually quickly want to mention another legend of Gaelic games, and that's Michal O'Murherty. He's a famous commentator on both the football and the hurling on radio and television. But that commentary bit I did in the story is kind of a tribute to him. It. <laughs> Yeah, a tribute. I don't know. Yeah, gas. <laughs> put yourself in the same category as the well, no. legend of me, Hollower Hertig. I I really really love me, Hollower Hertig. Um, like his commentary is he is such a brilliant way with language, Irish and English. And um, I mean, he's retired now. He's sure he's ninety odd, or if not more. I don't know. But he's really like many famous bits of commentary and we'll stick some of the best ones in the show notes. I'd love to be able to, I don't know, you'd never be able to get through the copyright stuff, but I'd love to be able to like throw in a few lines here now. But anyway, uh, one of my favourite lines from him was about Anthony Lynch, the Cork cornerback. We'll be the last person to let you down. His people are undertakers. (laughs) That's a proper Irish dad joke really, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think my favourite one is the one where he goes, uh, Sean Ogo Halpine, his father's from Fermanagh and his mother's from Fiji. Neither are hurling strong cold. And I mean, if you're not from Ireland, you don't know the game of hurling, that might not mean a lot to you. But people, Fermanagh's really, really not a hurling stronghold. And you can imagine neither is Fiji. Do you know, before we move on, I don't want to, because you could actually just do, you could sit here talking with Michal Murhertig for hours and hours, but there is a really, uh, I don't, what do you call that thing where people listen to people speaking softly on YouTube for like oh, ASMR. Yeah. There's a really good video of me, Oliver hurting, making a sandwich. <laughs> Do you remember really? this? I know I've never seen There's this. a video, we'll put the link in the, in the YouTube show notes and it's just him in his kitchen and he talks about taking out the bread and spreading the butter and the type and the sl- how he slices the tomatoes and the, the particular, uh, you know, the depth that you should go it's, it's very like, it's funny because it's Michal and Murherty. So what I think you should do is actually like watch his, you know, best of or listen to his best of commentary and then watch that video. Um, but yeah, anyway, that, all that will, gas stuff will be in the show notes. Yeah, so maybe we probably return to the matter at hand. The yeah. Serious matters of Irish mythology and historical yeah. context. So we mentioned earlier that there is another version of this story and that can be found in the book of Leinster which is held at Trinity College. Held makes it sound, it's been held hostage. Um, it's kept at Trinity and it's called uh, the, the, the Gowl um, in Cheetah or in English, the taking of the she mound. Now in this version of the story, the Dagda lives at Newgrange and the sea god, Mananon McLear, advises Angus on how to take it from him. The exact same advice as the Dagda receives, uh, or sorry, gives to Angus in the version of the story that we told today. The Book of Leinster dates from the latter half of the 12th century and the version there is probably a bit later than the one in The Wooing of Attain. And as we mentioned earlier, the language in that saga sets its original transcription in the 8th century. Now, at the time when the Book of Leinster was transcribed, there was actually some interesting historical events taking place in Ireland, which might explain the motivation for the Leinster revisionism in the plot of this tale. <laughs> that means- if you continue to listen to this podcast, you'll you'll realise that I have a, a a real resentment that's probably um mis not misplaced but uh, misguided. Well, I would say I would say probably mad a bit a bit late in the day that that means that Meath is considered part of Leinster because traditionally it was not. But anyway, that ship has sta- sailed, bud. You know, 
yeah, you know, f- freedom for Brega. Freedom for Brega. <laughs> but anyway, this, this this historical context around Leinster revisionism revolves around the Norman invasion of Ireland and the infamous chieftain who brought them here. Yeah, mm. uh, Dermot McMurrah or Dermot McMorrow, as you might know him, is uh, driven from the kingship of Leinster in 1166, and following his defeat at the hands of the King of Breffney, Tiernan O'Rourke. And forces allied to the High King of Ireland, Rory O'Connor, uh, Dermot flees to Wales and enlists the hope, the hope, the help, the hope and the help of some Norman lords, uh, most notably Richard de Clare, better known as Strongbow. So though he only initially intended to regain the throne of Leinster when the military superiority of the Norman mercenaries and his army became apparent, he made a bid for the High Kingship and the Normans gained a foothold in Ireland. But why might this be connected to the alternate version of the story of Angus taking Newgrange that appears in the Book of Leinster? And what light can be shed on the historical context for, for this version in The Wooing of a Tain? Well, a theory held by the renowned 19th century antiquarian Eugene O'Curry is that the Book of Leinster was probably commissioned by McMurkida or McMorrow and the dates fit. Fourteen years prior to his deposition by Rory O'Connor, McMurka fights against the King of Breffney alongside then High King Turlock. Turlock, is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Tur- like Turlock. Turlock O'Connor. Oh, yeah, he used to play for Bows. <laughs> Jesus. So McMurrow fights alongside Turlock O'Connor, and in gratitude for that, O'Connor grants him the lands of Eastern Meath, where Newgrange is situated. So what could be happening here is that the author, commissioned by Dermot McMurray, is asserting through myth Leinster's claim over Meath. Once again, boo. But why did they pick Mananon MacLear, the god of the sea, to help Angus trick the Dagda? Well, the name Murka, or McMurray, roughly translates as sea warrior. Very on the nose. It is very on the nose, isn't it? Mm. Your fixation with Leinster's claim over East Meath is gas. <laughs> like, it's the most bizarre county boundary issue like, I've ever heard. Anyway. A thousand year old grudge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why, why this story, though, um, I suppose, is the next question. Well, it could well be that the version in the wooing of Tain was itself used to stake a mythological claim on the very same territory centuries before. In this version, the Dagda rules from Ishnach, uh, which was the traditional seat of power in the Kingdom of Meath, uh, which initially grew from the area around Ishnach to encompass the area of the modern counties West Meath and par- parts of counties Offaly and Longford. So the area being referred to as East Meath in the time of Dermot McMorrow was previously called Brega and at its height encompassed the modern county Meath, part of Kildare, all of Dublin, sort of north of the Liffey and most of County Louth, but leaving out the part of North Louth that was in the Kingdom of Oriel or part of the Kingdom of Oriel. And this includes the important Iron Age royal seat at Tara and of course Newgrange. So both Meath and Brega were ruled by two related lines of the same family, the Southern O'Neills, who claimed descent from the semi-historical chieftain Nile of the Nine Hostages, who um, is allegedly buried at was buried at Tara. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in the anyway, in the late seventh century CE, however, uh, unexpected upheaval in Brega changes the course of Irish history. 
Now, the Annals of Ulster reports that in 685 CE, the Saxons lay waste to Maybreg, and many churches were burned in the month of June. Maybreg uh, means fair plain, and it's another name for Brega, so that's what they're calling it here. Now, the Annals of the Four Masters places this event in 683 CE, and it goes into a bit more detail. Basically, this it's a bit kind of truncated, but this is this is the quote. Um, that the devastation of Maybreg, both churches and territories, by the Saxons in the month of June precisely, and they carried off with them many hostages from every place which they left, together with many other spoils, and afterwards they went to their ships. Now, that was the Saxons. You're used to hearing about Norse and Dane Vikings, but it's not very often mentioned that the Saxons raided uh, Ireland before before they became all civilised and boring. Um, anyway, <laughs> th- these annals are brief lists of historical events that didn't go into a huge amount of detail, but while prior to this, the Brega branch of the Southern O'Neill dynasty was probably slightly more important than, or at least had parity with the Mead branch. Following this event, they gradually fall into lesser significance, and from the 8th century on, Around the time of the written version, the first written version of the Wooing of Attain, Brega falls further and further under the influence of Mead, and Mead splits the kingdom into two petty kingdoms, Crua, whose seat of power was Nauf in the north, and South Brega, whose seat of power was near present-day Rathoth, not far from Tara. So eventually, Brega is completely annexed by Mead and becomes known as East Mead. And after the Norman conquest, the territory for a while becomes the seat of Norman power. And when county boundaries are drawn up, uh, the majority of county boundaries that Marcus doesn't recognise because he's still operating on a thousand year old map, you know, uh, the majority of Brega retains the name East Mead and later becomes modern day County Meath with the majority of the old Kingdom of Mead becoming modern-day Westmeath. Now, that sheds some light in why there are two surviving versions of today's story and how these versions may have been used as kind of political propaganda, firstly by the clan Holman of the Mead branch of the Southern O'Neills and later by Dermot McMorrow and his Norman allies. So placing the Dagda's home at Ishnach in the wooing of Attain was undoubtedly like a real power move by the author, whose loyalties are clearly with the clan uh, clan Holman of Mead, as was the changing of roles from the Dagda to Mananon in the taking of, of the fairy mound. And what the original site of the Dagda's power in our ancient religion was is, is quite unclear. Uh, different tribes may have had their own versions where his home is in their territory and Newgrange is often described as his house elsewhere. Speaking of the Dagda, when we mentioned him in the last episode uh, on this, we said we said that we believe him to be part of the same class of gods as Mercury, Hermes, Odin and Thoth. There are other theories, however, and after the release of our episode covering part one, we received a message on Twitter from Brian Walsh, who writes about Irish mythology and pagan things on his blog, the song of Amergan, 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 it depends on your dialect but it's spelt A-M-E-R-G-I-N, uh, and that's song of Amergen at .wordpress.com. And there's no at in there. It's just no, song no of Amergen.wordpress.com. And we'll put that in the show notes so you can just look at it and don't have to pause and rewind. Anyway, Brian makes the case for the Dagda being closer to Jupiter than Mercury, with some of his theory hinging on Lou being our Mercury. And he does actually make a, a strong case for this. 
So he cites the fact that the Romans interpreted the continental uh, Celtic god Lugus as the equivalent of Mercury and that Lu is associated with prosperity and crossing boundaries and like Odin has a magic spear. He also makes the point that the Dagda's club has similarities with Thor's hammer which is a really interesting thing that I never thought of. And uh, Thor being in the Jupiter class of God and that the Olaher in the Eptet Ochid Olaher means great father and not all father like Odin, who is one of the Mercury gods. So Brian writes about all of this on his blog and in an essay in a book we've previously mentioned, uh, Harp, Club and Cauldron, A Harvest of Knowledge, edited by Laura O'Brien and Morpheus Ravenna. And you should check it out if you want to find out more. It is worth saying, however, though we've used Interpretario Romano in the past on this podcast, there is an important concept whose name was given to us by the Romans that we should apply to any of these Roman declarations, and that is a caveat. The Interpretario Romano was not a neutral, academically-minded study in comparative mythology. It was actually a tool of Roman imperial expansion, and we're being very anti-imperialist today. Between anti-Roman imperialism and anti-Leinster imperialism, I think there's you know. a strong streak of anti-imperialism <laughs> just in general about this house. But anyway, yeah. so anyway, the Romans were known to weaponize religion and the altered aspects of their own gods and the gods they encountered during their conquest to suit their own ends. In fact, Lucas was given dominion over commerce by the Romans, possibly because he already shared some of Mercury's characteristics and Mercury dominion over commerce. So like um, mercurial, that comes from the same root as Mercury, you know, and or even I think commerce itself comes from that. And then you just look at what they did to Christianity. Like it was under Romans, Roman, it was under Roman supervision that the Gospels that we have now were canonized and that loads of other ones were discarded. And then Christ took on some of the characteristics of the Roman god Sol Invictus and the god Mithras. Mark Williams in a book Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods and Irish Myth, notes that similarities between the Dagda and Jupiter in medieval texts, texts even, uh, could well be contemporary to the writing of the tale and directly influenced by the Roman and Greek myths that we, that would have been known to the classical authors at that time. Now, we've said before, though, that we don't think that there's there was, you know, a single pantheon of gods in Ireland because Ireland was not a single political unit and didn't even have like a single native language across the island in the Iron Age and probably not even around in, until around kind of the 5th century CE. So it is entirely possible there was more than one Mercury god on the island and that the Dagda was pre-Celtic, surviving into the Celtic Age because of his sort of unshakable popularity with the common folk. Yeah, actually Brian's essay there that you mentioned starts with a prayer to the Dagda, which is actually my favourite Irish, modern Irish pagan prayer. And there's a real power in it that you don't find in a lot of them. It really, you know, you can feel that fire just like burning up from from the bottom of your stomach up through your chest. Well, I do anyway. Um, <laughs> but anyway, having, having said that, all that, I do think the Dagda very much fits the Mercury class. And when you take all of those gods into consideration and, you know, we only name it after Mercury because of the reach of the Roman Empire and their written records. But Mercury was not the first of them. You can hear some of our explanation in the previous episode on this, but we'll just briefly go over that here and add a bit of detail on Odin and in particular. So most of these gods are associated with livestock, the Dagda is as well. They're associated with sorcery. Traveling, traveling freely between the earth, the heavens and the underworld and having power over life and death. 
the Dagda is a messenger. And we'll see this later in the second battle of Moitura when he travels from the realms of the Tuatha'i to the land of the Formorians to negotiate and thus stall the forthcoming battle, which is reminiscent of Odin, whose horse Sleipnir can take him from Asgard to hell, the world of the dead. The Dagda creates and marks boundaries like Hermes, and he holds feasts like Odin. And you could argue that like Odin, he shares the duties of choosing the slain with a goddess. Yeah, and the Dagda's club, as it is usually referred to, it's it's not quite Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer. It can take life and restore it. Uh, the other chooser of the slain in Irish mythology is the Morrigan. In Norse mythology, Odin chooses half of the slain on the battlefield to go to Valhalla and the other half are chosen by Freya to go to Folkvanger. Um, as we've mentioned before, his association with knowledge, it's its very reminiscent of Odin. Uh, the Dagda is known as uh, Rua Roessa, the red man of perfect knowledge, while Odin knows all. And one of his names is Fjolsvidir, or the one who knows much. Now, he hanged himself on the world tree to gain knowledge of the runes and he he has the head of the giant Mimir to give him advice. He has two ravens, Hugin and Munin, who fly around the world and return to tell him everything that they see. The Dagda also kind of has an association with Corvids, albeit uh, crows rather than ravens, and indirectly at that via his wife, the Morrigan. Now, even the Dagda's club is not a cut and dried issue and... So there's a bit of a twist in the tale. It might not actually be a club. Club is the usual English translation given for the object. But the Middle Irish word is lorg, which, to quote Morgan Daimler in the aforementioned book, Harp Club and Cauldron, it can also be understood as a rod of office, a stick, a cudgel, a penis, or a staff. <laughs> you know what? I think, given the propensity uh, for for wordplay in these, it, it could probably have been meant to mean all of those things in in different parts of stories. You know, there's so many like phallic references in yeah. these stories. Sure, what about the time where um, oh god, who is it they meet in before the Battle of Mature and they measured their spears? It's um, oh yeah, the Brez and and Shrank. Yes. Although Brez. I think I like my my uh, adaptation might have inadvertently amplified that element of it. But anyway, well, there's still like were, I mean uh, the story. Regardless of what you amplified, they were, like they're they were still each other's weapons. Yeah, like they're me- literally <laughs> measuring them. You know, sorry if there are children in your <laughs> room at home, but like I mean, yeah. Anyway, Sherlock. <laughs> but anyway, Morgan Daimler goes on to say that. In the saga, the Kaimaitura, it's also called, the staff or club is also called a gaul gika or... Pro- <laughs> Sorry. I know, that's a funny, it does sound funny. I know. Or a pro- it's a pronged pole. Is it now? It is. Sorry. <laughs> With the word gaul itself being another Irish term for stave or stick. Also junction, if you've been on a train, you'll know gaul benager or um, what's the other one? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> And the famous limerick insult, you're a gal, because it looks like a crotch. And here's the, the thing. Hermes and Mercury carry a staff. And in Hermes' case, this staff has the power to put someone to sleep or wake them up. So I think that's too big a similarity to be a coincidence. 
As we were saying, though, it is possible that more than one god on the island fit into this class. And interestingly, the Greek Hermes was originally depicted as an older bearded man like the Dagda, but in later descriptions is young like Lou. So uh, just one more thing before we move on. Odin had many offspring, but he had one son in particular called Vali. Always reminds me of like Frankie Valli <laughs> in the Four Seasons. Great, they had some great songs. Anyway, uh, Valley, who was born of a partner who was not his usual partner, and though the pregnancy didn't begin and end in a single day, Valley grew from birth to adulthood in a single day. So, which of course brings us to the topic of Angus. Angus is associated with youthful vigor, love, and poetry. Now, most of the stories he plays a prominent role in are actually love stories, including the wooing of Atain, the love story part of which, of course, we haven't come to yet. But also in the very famous Fenian cycle tale, The Pursuit of Dermot and Grania. And we'll come back to his role with regard to that in the next episode on this. And we'll have some examples from the story to discuss. His name is generally believed to mean true vigour, though an alternative is one desire, derived from his mother's declaration in the story we told two episodes back. Uh, that union with the Dagda was her one desire. He's also called Makog or Makanog, um, young son or young boy, and like many of the, do- the dogs, the gods, has a list of epithets, including um, of the many exploits. Mighty and stern and red-armed and red-handed, which could possibly hint at some Ulster connection, the red hand being a symbol of that province. Now that epithet usually comes from a poem in the Metrical Dinschenkis about the origin of the name of Brefna, a medieval Irish kingdom encompassing most of the counties Cavan, Fermanagh and Leitrim, two of which are in Ulster today. Interesting that in that poem and in some other Dinschenkis poems, he is depicted as a warrior, which is a side of him you don't see a lot of today. And there are a few probable reasons for this. The first is that for the most part, the Dinschenkis poems are a bit cryptic and considered difficult, although that in itself is probably down to the very literal translations we have available to us. But as a result, the likes of the story of Dermot and Grania and this one are just better known. And the other reason is Angus's prominence in the Gaelic literary revival of the late 19th and 20th century uh, under the influence of the poet William Butler Yeats, which might have had something to do with Yeats's unhealthy obsession with Maud Gan, his great unrequited love that he wrote many of his poems about, probably all of them bar one, probably. And um, in what will either be a special treat or the stuff of nightmares for anyone who did the Leave Insert exam up until 1999, we will talk a bit more about Yeats, Angus and the tragic love stories uh, in part three. Yeats was a massive weirdo. He was. He would definitely mm-hmm. be cancelled today, oh, yeah. I think. I think we should, we should just cancel him anyway. We'll cancel, cancel him in the next him. episode. Yeah, he'll, yeah, news coming soon. Yeats cancellation in the next episode. <laughs> In today's story, however, one of Angus's roles revolves around his relationship to the other gods as the son of the Dagda and Bowen and the foster son of Midir and Fumach. Nowadays, we tend to think of fostering as something that happens when there are problems in the home life of a child, but it was very common both in Irish mythology and actually just in medieval Irish society in general for there to be children fostered as like sort of a normal thing. Many major mythological figures were fostered. Angus, Lou, Cúchulain, Fionn McCool are probably amongst the most famous. And the reason for this may be that it was just a very common thing to happen at the time these stories were written down. Yeah, it wasn't just myth 
that fosterage was common. It was almost a norm for children born into the upper classes in Irish society to be fostered. And it was so common that, according to Fergus Kelly in A Guide to Early Irish Law, in relation to intimate forms of addressing parents like mum or dad or mum or whatever, in Old Irish, intimate forms were transferred actually to the foster parents. So usually mumma or for foster mother and Atche for foster father. And you didn't get that for the biological parents. Oh, interesting. And as you might have guessed, seeing as we've cited the book, um, the law book again, there are laws of the old Breton system relating to fosterage. There are two types of fosterage outlined in the laws, uh, fosterage for affection and fosterage for a fee. Fosterage for a fee is covered in a law tract called the Con era, which outlines things like the fee itself and the proper treatment of foster children. So the fee to the foster parents like would vary according to the status of the child, with three sets uh, being paid for fostering the son of an okra, which was like the lowest grade of free people, uh, up to 30 sets for the son of a king. Interestingly, the fee for fostering a girl was higher than that for a boy. And there's no explanation for why in the law tracts. But Fergus Kelly surmises that the foster parents would be less likely to benefit in later life if they fostered a girl. Or that a girl might have been considered more difficult to raise. Probably because girls just want to have fun. Mm, Marcus... God almighty. The the foster parents were obliged to raise the child in the style that they would be accustomed to if if they were at home and educated in accordance with their rank. So there's a couple of examples given in Fergus Kelly's book. The son of a king or noble would have been expected to be taught to play board games, horse riding, swimming and marksmanship. And I assume that assume that uh, refers to archery. Um, a noble's daughter, on the other hand, would have to be taught sewing, cloth cutting and embroidery. Moving down the ranks, the son of an okra would be taught things like how to look after lambs, calves, kid goats, piglets, that kind of crack, um, how to dry corn. They would co- learn how to comb wool and chop firewood, uh, while a daughter of the same rank would learn how to mill corn and, and knead dough. So you can see why there might have been like a big disparity in the fees. Raising a child of noble birth would be a lot more expensive. The, the laws also laid down things like setting a time frame for the fosterage and what would happen if the contract was breached on either side. I love the thing. One of the things I love about Breton law, it's like so specific. Like they all, you know, it talks about what would happen if the child was improperly treated and so on. So, I mean, if you get a chance, go and look at the book yourself. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in there. Indeed, it is. It's a great book, actually, very useful. We're running out of time, but I do briefly want to cover some of the place lore of this story, as there are some very important sites mentioned. So, Ishnach is in County Westmeath. It's a little more than halfway between Mullingar and Athlone, slightly closer to Mullingar. And as we've mentioned earlier, the kingdom... <laughs> you know, every time you say Mullingar, it reminds me of a friend of mine years ago. He used to refer to it as Moulanger. <laughs> every time I think of it, yeah, I, I think of that. Moulanger. Yeah. That's what the Normans called it. Yeah, Moulanger. <laughs> Hi to all our listeners in Moulanger. As we've mentioned earlier, um, Westmead was the Kingdom of Mead, which means middle. And it initially grew up around the site of Ishnach, and it was considered the centre or the navel of Ireland. And it's actually not far off being in the middle. Um, there is evidence of human occupation there from the Neolithic Age through the Iron Age and into the medieval period. 
and as well as being a place of earthly power, it was an important ceremonial site and modern pagans to this day put great importance into it. Brila, uh, the home of Midir, was not far away at all. It's in County Longford near Arda village and it would take about a half an hour probably to drive from one to the other. There is a walk you can do today uh, if you're between or within the 5k at the moment, but sure, hopefully soon that will be able to go, uh, called the Brila Walk. It's on Arda Mountain and I believe there's information on the story of the wooing of Attain along the way of that walk. Anyway, we really are running out of time now, but we will include more information on Ishnak and Brila in the Enhanced Patrons show notes on Patreon. Speaking of which, if you have been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it isn't free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, and down the line, the big ambitious one, paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love, and of course, the Tom Cunha the musical. Starring Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, yeah, there's a range of benefits at different price tiers and from just €3 Euro a month, you can get early access to each episode, story scripts and enhanced show notes, while from €5 Euro a month, you can get access to bonus episodes. So go have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at Irish Mythology Podcast dot IE. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. It really helps us reach a wider audience or even just share the episode. Tell your friends, tell your dad, tell your ma, they'll really like it. And always remember, if a person shows up at your house and asks if they can stay there, lay kaniha. Be very, very careful about how you respond. Slán live, Banachí Galair, we'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast Written Presented And produced By Marcus O'Hishkeen And Stephanie Hearney Theme music By Damiano Baldoni Celtic Warrior On an attribution license <laughs>